With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Mena's Masterclass. My guest today, Robert Craddock, is one of Australia's finest and most respected sports journalists. He is a columnist for the News Corp papers, a panellist on Fox Sports show The Back Page, and appears regularly on radio and TV right around Australia. He is affectionately known as Crash, and I have enjoyed his cricket writing since he started touring with the Aussies back in 1993. He covers all sports and, in my opinion, is one of the best all-round sports journalists in Australia. On a personal note, when this podcast joined the News Corp network, he was very supportive and made many fine contributions to this show. Well, thank you very much for subscribing to Patreon and enjoy my interview with Robert Craddock. Crash, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm uh, very well, man. It's an honour to be a part of your show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I know you spend a lot of your time writing about other people's stories. And, well, you know, I actually want to talk about your story this time because, you know, I'm a big fan. I'm an unabashed Crash fan. I've always loved the way you cover the game. And, you know, you've just got you, – you've not just got, a, obviously, a knack for a story, but you just bring such a sort of, you know, a lens that the common person can look at, you know, various sports through. Oh, thanks, Menace. Look, um, I do my best uh, within modest limitations, but, uh, you know, I think one of the keys that I, I was told as a young guy was never get too complex. And the more complex a story, the simpler you write it. Like, convert everything into layman's language. Don't use a word that, where you make sounds like you're trying to impress people. Just connect with the common man. So you, you try. Sometimes it... It, uh, it doesn't work, but it's uh, it's a, a, an interesting beast, the media. It's changing all the time. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm obviously a massive cricket fan, and that's my sort of one um, passion. But you seem to have a, a passion for all sports. I mean, I hear you on the back page and on, on the radio with Jared Waitley. You can talk about any sports. Are you just a, a sports lover? You watch them all? Yeah, because I enjoy the people as much as the sport, you know, and I, I – just always find that no matter what sport you go to, it's the humanity that gets me in. You know, I still love Yvonne Goulagong's French Open victory 50 years ago. I mean, reading about her story as a young Indigenous sports person coming through, you can imagine what white Australia would have been 
when she won the French Open and, and the sort of barriers she overcame. So, you know, there, there's so many great stories out there that are just not cricket. I love the bushfires that burn in rugby league, the humanity, the passion. I mean, blokes wanting to argue with each other every week, but it's sort of fun. And, and <laughs> rugby league I like because it's rough and raw and real, but people care about it, and that's the big thing. Yeah. Is, um, is rugby league different to cover than cricket in a sense that it seems, as you say, it's a bit rougher and you know, cricket seems a little bit sanitised compared to rugby league? Oh, oh yeah. And, and I think league is one of the great off-field sports in the world. It's one of the most vibrant beyond the boundary because uh, Ben Iken calls it the soap opera that never ends. Well, I, you could call it the bushfire that never stops burning. And uh, there's just so many narratives to it, like players changing clubs, concussion rules, judiciary, referees. Uh, you know, there's private owners, there's teams, clubs owned by fans. And I think... It, it just provides non-stop stories. And also in rugby league, everyone talks to you. You know, they're, they're, they're a pretty unpretentious lot. No, I like that about them. And, uh, you know, it seems, though, that cricket, uh, unlike the fragmentation of, you know, the, the different football codes, when a cricket story hits, it does seem to light up the nation like no other sport. It's, it's sort of the only sport that really unites us. Oh, it, that's a really good point, man, is... When the ball tampering scandal broke, I realised how big cricket really is. Like, on the metrics of stories, um, two and a half thousand hits is a pass mark for a story in our system. And some of the guys were doing stories on the ball tampering that were getting 160,000. I mean, that is huge. I mean, people were having an insatiable appetite. And as big as all the football sports are, a huge cricket story, I think, beats a lot of them. Like, ball tampering was in, off the charts with, with interest and um, because we're all cricket fans at heart in Australia. So I know the, the Australian, uh, the newspaper, which covers uh, the entire uh, nation, of course, they constantly have a, uh, an inward private debate. What should we lead the back page on? Should we go with AFL and... and, and alienate the league fans or vice versa in winter, but they love summer because everyone loves cricket. So they just go bang, bang, bang. And also one last thing about cricket. I love how the beauty of cricket writing shines through on big stories, reading the ball tampering with uh, Gideon Hay, Pete Lawler, Greg Baum, uh, Ben Horn and, and people like that. John Perrick, Andrew Wu, they all, there's a lovely flavor to their writing. It, it's uh, it's quite something. Yeah, it was an incredible time. Certainly um, improved the downloads on this podcast, the ball tampering, I've got to say. You mentioned Yvonne Goulagong before and her fantastic story of winning the French Open. And, you know, you said you're attracted to the human side of sport. Uh, you know, apart from that one, are there any sort of stories that you often, um, you know, think about or any human stories that, you know, have stayed with you? Yeah, there are many, actually. Um I, I thought that Ash Barty's effort to win the French Open after playing cricket with the Brisbane Heat was just about the story of the century for Australia. I mean, she'd given tennis away. Uh, you know, she was playing with the, you know, the, the Heat. She, she, 
a Wimbledon passed when she was out of the game and she barely watched it. Her friend said, oh, what about this win last night? She said, oh, I didn't see it. And, and, and I was so intrigued by Ash Barty, like getting down to uh, her friends at Springfield outside Ipswich there, you know, running into uni kids who she'd you know, known from school and then suddenly being the number one in the world and winning the French Open. Extraordinary story. Also like Jeff Horn, the boxer, beating Manny Pacquiao at Suncorp in front of 50,000, taking up boxing as the sort of kid who was bullied at school and said, oh, I better learn to defend myself. <laughs> really deep and mild guy, no tats, nothing. Yeah. It was like you and me becoming a boxer and he beat the world's best. That was the most underrated win of the century. I thought that was absolutely fabulous, that one. It was uh, just great. And uh, of sort of sporting events you've attended, uh, any in particular that are really memorable, like those, you know, moments, you know, people talk about the the Cricket World Cup final of 2019 and any moments that you just will really never forget? The top top cream. Uh, Well, London Olympics just... Superb. A city made for the Olympics. It was beautiful. Sydney Olympics, great. But you know, Menas, don't write off the um, the, the wonderful uh, India's win against Australia at the Gabba on the last day of the Test series, breaking the 32-year-old Gabba hoodoo. When a, you have a finish to a cricket game like that, it's almost as if the game is played on a cloud. Like, that Gabba, I looked out and it, people were going berserk in the stands. I looked out the back on Vulture Street, Manners, and there was Indian fans running up the street to get to the turnstiles to fill the stadium. They came from all around Brisbane, all around. It was just had this, and Rishabh Pant was going off. I, I just thought that was, uh, I never thought I'd see that day. I thought I would retire having only covered one losing test at the Gabba when the Australians were done by the West Indies in 88. I thought that'd be it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, with a weakened team. Don't write off that one. That was one of the really epic events. You were one of the, I guess, the few people or the journos to be there because I think with the border closures, a lot of the game was being covered remotely. So, you know, you got a great view. Oh, it was. And, you know, sport. I love when sport throws up things that surprise you. I mean... That Indian team that won in Australia last summer, we had written them off. But the good Indian journalists who we spoke to were saying, no, no, you've completely misread this. This team is now stocked with kids who never thought they'd get a chance at test cricket. And they're saying, how good is this? We don't care about Gabba hoodoos. We don't care about reputations. We're playing a test match. Can you believe it? So they had no fear whatsoever. Whereas Australia were protecting their record. So they, they they suddenly were the ones who were bound by fear. So massive, but what a great story. Yeah, terrific. My um, favourite cricket game that I've been to was the 99 World Cup semi-final at Edgbaston. I don't know mm. if you were covering that World yes. Cup, uh, but that that's the most memorable cricket match I've ever been to. It just had, it, had everything. Oh, yeah, Australia versus South Africa. It was... Uh, you know, a tied game and, uh, you know, who, who, it was incredible, really. And I watch it back and your palms still go sweaty with uh, Alan Donald being run out of the last ball of the match and Australia somehow winning. 
And, and it lived on in the minds of the Australian players. I remember uh, Adam Gilchrist years later in 2005 when Australia lost a test match there and he said he could hear the English team celebrating in the next room. And he said, you know what? It struck me. We were celebrating so long and loud when we, when we uh, in the drawn game that went through to the final. He said, it must have been terrible for the South Africans to hear our chants and our joyful, you know, way we just went off tap after the <laughs> uh, getting through. And I thought it was lovely of Gilchrist to remember that, to think, gee, I wonder how they felt. We must, they must have been crushed by our cheers all that in, back in 99. Boy, they were. That was um, quite a game. I mean, I know your uh, career covering cricket on the road kind of coincided with Shane Warnes, but I think that match, as, as good as any match, shows the brilliance of Warne. The game was gone. South Africa, none for 40, chasing 200. That had a good tournament. Warne comes on to bowl, and he just turned the game on its head. And it, it just showed his brilliance. And he'd come off a, a tough tour of the Windies. It was, you know, Warne at his finest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lost his test place to Stuart McGill a few months before. But that was probably the single most underestimated thing about Shane Warne in that, and what made him a true champion, he always wanted the ball. I'll handle this. Give me the ball. Now, there's been plenty of top batsmen who never wanted to bat at number three. There's been plenty of great players who didn't want the ball in the big moments. Shane Warne was the opposite. He, He had a certain confidence in his ability and a fearlessness about him that made him always want the ball. Yeah, what was he like to deal with when you were covering him? He was interesting. Uh, as a young guy, my first interview with him when he came through was he was 12th man uh, for Victoria, but he was still the big thing. Everyone was had their eyes over him and he was a bit overweight. He was pretty uh, comfortable with his opinions and just loving the journey. Oh, look, I really enjoyed his career. And, of course, the pressures of superstardom are something that probably none of us can ever identify, you know, of, of you know, being in demand 24 hours a day. I remember once Warren said to us, he said to his secretary, I am categorically having two weeks off. Don't write one thing. You know, that's it. And, he, and she said, fine, but don't forget Wednesday you're doing this. Oh, and, of course, the Monday after you're doing this. And he said, before I knew, he said I was doing two, three things a day because he said, that's my life. So he was different, Warnie, um, but he was – the other thing about him was he was tough. Oh, man. His mother was of German extraction. And I often feel there was a little bit – you know those German soccer players that are so hard and tough and never give in? I felt he had a bit of that in him. When they opened up his shoulder in 1999, the surgeons apparently looked at each other and said, man, has this guy been bowling? Like he was so tough. He just wanted to keep bowling. So, yeah, but uh, it was a great time. The best quote on Warren came after he was a sensation on the 1993 tour. And his coach, Terry Jenner, said this. He said, you can fully expect... Shane will inspire thousands of kids to take up leg spin. And you can also fully expect that not one of them maybe will be good at test cricket because it's that hard. He said they'll get lost in the system at grade level or at Sheffield Shield level. And he said, but it's that hard. He, he is a one-off, this guy. Yes, you'll get thousands of them right down at grade level, 
but none of them may come through. And he was right. He was right. You're right. We haven't had a leg spinner until now, really, with Swepson, who's um, your mate up in Queensland, doing well. Now, Crash, I want to just ask you a little bit about how you, you got into media. Um, you know, what sort of influence did your parents have on on you as a youngster? What did they do? Well, managed they, uh, it, what, I pretty much found it myself. They bought me a book called Slasher Opens Up, which was the life story of a cricketer called Ken Mackay, who's a test player and an all-rounder from Australia. And I loved it. It was written by a Corey Mull journalist called Frank O'Callaghan, and I read it about 20 times. <laughs> And imbued in me a love of cricket. And then at age 12, I made a trip, a school trip, a school excursion to this paper where I'm sitting down now, the Courier Mail. And they went in the dark room and they developed photos in front of me. And there was a photo developed of a footballer called Jerry Fitzpatrick from Valleys. And they said, if anyone can identify this player, you can keep the photo. And I said, that's Jerry Fitzpatrick. And they gave it to me and I loved it. And 30 years later, when I worked for the paper, I came back and I went to the photo files, to Jerry's file, and there was the other copy <laughs> that wow. was developed that day. And so I just looked at it and I thought, oh, I so remember that. In the, in the milky pond where photos were developed and they'd come to life before your eyes, I remember Jerry appearing. And so I had, from the time I visited this paper as a 12-year-old, I just thought, Wow, this is, uh, you know, I, I love the vibe of this newspaper. It's great. You know, and I love sports, so it was a nice fit. Yeah, what do you think it was that attracted you? Was it the, the, the magic of um, the media? Was it, you know, was it just the love? Do you love, have you always loved telling stories? What was it, do you think, that twigged at that 12-year-old? I think it was um, two things, just a real deep-seated love of all sports, particularly cricket, but this, the written word has always enchanted me. I can remember that I could rattle off who the Courier Mail journalists were. Peter Blucher, AFL, Jeff Orr, the fishing writer. Even read his column because I thought anything that was sport I had to read, even if it was fishing. Even today, Menace, when we have work experience kids here, I always like saying, um, oh, by the way, uh, if you want to get into sport, Who's your favourite sports journalist? And if they can't name someone, it's a real setback, I have to say. It's a little private rating system I've got. If they say, oh, I really love Gideon Haig or I really love Jim Tucker or someone, that's great. Love it. And the more obscure, the better. But if they can't name someone, I think, well, really, that's like a racing rider saying, uh, who's your, which is your favourite Melbourne Cup winner? Oh, I haven't really got one. Come on. If you're imbued in the sport, you're imbued in the sport. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're only going to make it in media if you really immerse yourself. But, um, and what about your parents? Uh, well, yeah, they must be, must have been really proud of the way you've, you know, built this sort of very successful career. Yeah. Uh, Dad's uh, was a dentist and a sports fan. He bowled leg spin and his love of leg spin was passed on to me. But, I left them when I was 17 and went up to do journalism, studied in Toowoomba. And uh, I think I've lived the life that my dad probably wanted to lead because, you know, he was a country dentist who worked so hard and did a, did a great job for the whole family. But his love of sports certainly flowed through to me. He loved it from top to bottom. 
Yeah, who were your childhood heroes growing up sports-wise? You know, who was Little Crash following? I love, because I was an asthmatic, I went to the Gabba one day and watched Rodney Hogg bowl in a test where he put his hands on his hips after bowling a couple of overs and wheezed like an asthmatic. Now, I thought, wow, this guy's an asthmatic and he's a test bowler. I, I like, And I just, he was my first sort of hero. I just thought, gee, if you can be an asthmatic and you can bowl for your country, how good is that? That, that proved to me that you can still have a normal sporting life. And I, I thought he was fabulous. I, I really did. And, you know, some, sometimes your heroes aren't necessarily the big names. Sam Trimble, the old Queensland opening batsman. I always listened to, to Rod Tiley or whoever it was on the radio, ABC, and to give the updated scores. And Queensland are six for 95 at the Gabba. And Sam Trimble, who opened the innings, is not out 47. Honestly, the amount of times I heard that. <laughs> It, when Queensland had nothing, they had Sammy Trimble. So, yeah, he was uh, he was quite something. Yeah, oh, fantastic. And uh, I guess since you've been in media, you would have come across these guys. Um, Hoggy, of course. I always find now, you know, when I interview a former cricketer that was a childhood hero, that really excites me. You know, the, obviously the current one's great. To, but when you chat with Alan Border, who was my, you know, first captain that you looked up to, they the the ones that sort of, I don't know, give me tingles. How did? How about you? Terrific question. And I, I found that of all the players, Alan Border was the least demonstrative in retirement. He's the most humble guy. And yet, I still remember covering his career at the Gabba and my palms went sweaty when he came out to bat because, you know, it was Border or bust. And um, when I was a young reporter, Alan Border said to me, I'll give you some advice, all right? If you are in doubt over a story, ring me. And he said, I'd much rather deny it or confirm it over the phone than ring you the next day and say, what in God's name are you writing that for? So I did. And there was times when I rang him and he was really short or whatever, but he he did res- he re- always remembered what he said to me. And uh, I, I adore him. I, I find that I still feel... <laughs> as you do probably two matters, slightly, oh, a bit in awe of him. And isn't that funny? Because he's the most humble, unpretentious bloke. But when he walks in the room, I still sort of think, oh, it's AB. You know, and you get that, a bit of star quality, even though he's got, in his own way, so unpretentious. It's still there, that boyhood admiration, that idolisation. It's still there, matters. The fact that he was in the role for so long and, you know, he carried Australian cricket... Yeah, and it was more than that. Like, he had no coach with him initially in the team before Bob Simpson joined in the mid-1980s. So, wow. And no media department. I didn't real. I can still, after all these years, man, this, I can recite Alan Border's home phone number. It's three. I won't tell you what it is, but it's three, seven, something. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I could, because I rang it so often. Now, I had to go out one day to get a photo of him and Jane for his 100th test. And I reckon I was out there for 50 minutes and the phone rang seven times. Everyone had his home number. And it always amazed me. I think, I wonder why AB answers the phone like, hello, like that, as if saying, I'm at the end of a tether. But when I went and visited him, we got that photo, I thought, oh, it's all, 
makes sense now. He's just he just gets so many calls. There is no protective layer between Alan Border and the media. Everyone's got his own number and they ring it. No wonder we're all driving him stark raving mad. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've heard you talk about that you um, started touring around this time Shane Warne started touring. So that would have been, was that the tour to Sri Lanka in what, 92 or before yeah, that? Yeah, no, uh, to New Zealand and England in 1993. And they were the uh, times men as where you didn't even have to ask permission to talk to someone. You lined up all your interviews yourself. I can still remember in England in 93, Shane Warne and Mark Taylor were rooming together. No, so it was New Zealand, Shane Warner, Mark Taylor. And I just went to his room, knocked on his door, said, can I have an interview? He said, yeah, come on in. And uh, he talked about how he was using the flipper as a secret weapon, and it'll be the secret weapon to the Poms. And Tubby was laughing on the other bed. He was saying, oh, gee, Warner, you, you, you are a true spin bowler, aren't you? Talking up the mystery balls. <laughs> but, but that was life in the early 90s. You just rock up to a player's room and... Uh, knock, 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 or ring him in his room. Hey, you going, mate? Yeah, what's happening? And uh, it was beautiful and informal. Uh, I, I loved it. I um, had a little bit of a window into that era because Ian McDonald, the former media manager and team manager, is a was a close family friend and he sadly passed away last year. So you would have dealt with Macca a lot. But uh, it was rough and raw. It was, you know, there was the coach, there was Macca, and that was it, the players. And, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd go to a pub and you'd see everybody be together kind of oh. on tour. Well, this is what had happened, all right? The day's play would finish. You'd go back, you'd stay at the team hotel, you'd go back to the team hotel, you'd follow your story, and you'd always have two beers in the bar. Probably not, not more than that. And the players would be back there having two beers in the bar after the day's play. So quite often you'd be ordering a beer and someone like Darren Lehman would walk past say, did you catch that today? He said, oh, mate, I just thought it got under my fingers, yeah, but, hey, what about Sansa? Didn't he go, well, wow. And so it was very, very natural. Relationships grew, you know, and you learnt from the players. They, they, you know, you had really good, smooth relationships. Sure, there were blow-ups occasionally, but uh, and then the players would go out to dinner. You know, players like Jeff Marsh and David Boone, they used to sit with Alan Border and have a couple of beers before and after dinner. It was just part of who they were, part of their, their ability to to relax. So uh, it was, yeah, it was, was was so much fun. And there was Ian McDonald was an interesting guy because he was their long term team manager. And um, Neil Harvey used to bag Alan Border all the time. And Ian McDonald loved Neil Harvey. He thought he was great. But he hated the criticism for Border. And I could still hear him saying, oh, you know what, mate, Harbs has gone off again. Now, I like Harbs. I really do. But, gee, I tell you what, I wish he could put a sock in it. Fair dinkum. I mean, he's had to go at AB. But next time he saw Neil Harvey, I'm actually thinking, oh, I love Harbs. <laughs> so he was tugged in different directions. Absolutely. Um, I think Alan Border's routine used to be a few beers and then a toasted cheese sandwich and then in bed ready to make 100 the next day. Yeah, he was an unusual uh, player. What, what I liked about him was he practised in the nets as if it was a test match. He just didn't muck around. Like, he, he was when he was practising, he was on. Um, he wasn't the fittest guy around, but he was cricket fit. And uh, he wasn't a gym junkie. But he was tough. And what I loved, loved, loved about him was just the respect he got for the opposition and the embodiment of it was the way he was treated by Kirtley Ambrose. 
curtly refused to acknowledge or speak to any other Australian cricketer. He just said nothing to them, nothing, zero, zilch. But to Border, when he passed him in the morning, he would say, morning, Skipper. And, okay, that's just two words, isn't it? But it speaks volumes. It's, mm. it's Ambrose. And I, I rate you, A.B. It's respect, yeah. It was just, you know, everyone rated Border. They, uh, you know, you could just tell how, how much they, the opposition admired him. And, uh, you know, I, 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 so did journalists, you know. Um, Mike Coward, the uh, iconic Sydney journalist, I heard him once, a young, young journalist said, oh, we're off to interview Captain Grumpy. And Mike said, I beg your pardon. He said, don't call him that. He said, he said, are you aware of the pressure this guy is under? And he really stuck up for Border. But 10 minutes later, he was in a press conference with Border where Border said, oh, I think our batsmen will get there eventually. And Mike said, Alan, you've been saying that for a year. Honestly, you have. So Mike, to me, was so impressive the way he'd stick up for Border behind his back, but to his face, he'd be really honest. Outstanding work, I reckon. Yeah, I saw Mike the um, other week at the Chapel Foundation dinner. He's still in great form. Um, terrific gentleman. And, Menace, here's the strange thing. So often, and you know this, so often in cricket writing, your best mates are your opposition because you spend so much time on tour together. I absolutely adore Phil Wilkins from the Sydney Morning Herald. Yet, you know, on tour, he'd often scoop me. And, and you know, he was such a hard opponent. My Lord, he broke the ball to the... Uh, match-fixing story, you know, and uh, all the Fairfax boys, Greg Baum, uh, Alex Brown, Chris Barrett, they were hard work, but you ended up sort of mates with them as well uh, out of mutual respect. It was was quite something and something I'll always cherish. Yeah, I mean, speaking of sort of breaking stories, do you remember that first sort of big story you broke in any sport when you you sort of realised, oh, I've, I've got a scoop here? Yeah, uh, the memories fade. I... I, I I thought there was plenty of better uh, news journalists on the uh, circuit than me, Menas. I'll say that straight away. But uh, a most significant one, in my first tour in 1993, the Ashes to England, I was absolutely desperate to get that squad. Michael Slater was in it. Dean Jones had missed out. Matthew Hayden got to go. uh, And it was a really... I was desperate to get it. I made... Dozens and dozens of calls until finally, late afternoon, one fellow said to me, I think you'll find this could be the team. And uh, I thought, do I go with this guy or not? Then I looked at the team he'd given me and I realised something about it. You know what? You know what it was? He gave it to me in alphabetical order. And I thought, wow, that means that's come from the Cricket Australia board because that's how they get teams approved in alphabetical order. Like. If I said to you now, name the Australian cricket team in alphabetical order, it, you couldn't do it over the phone. It would take you five, ten minutes. Whereas he was going, right, uh, he went through the list from Border down to, uh, you know, Merv Hughes, and it was all done in, in alphabetical order. So I went with that, and it was a good start to the tour. And, and it just it kicked me off on the right note. Plenty of times I've been on the other side of the ledger, as I said, Phil, Phil Wilkins in 1995, I was in a hammock at my sister's place and he broke the story about Sally Malik's uh, offering players money to, to uh, lose test matches. And uh, Menace on that one, I spoke to a mate and we said, how long do you reckon this story will run? And he said, oh, probably two or three days. Well, it's still running 25 years later. So 
I'll have to pay that one, Menace. Yeah. yeah, that's for sure. So, you you know, you spoke about the 93 too. We've spoken about Alan Border. So you would have, um, I guess, dealt with all the Australian captains. And I'm fascinated with the the the, the role of the Australian captain and, and how that's, you know, such a high-profile position. It really is, you know, just below the Prime Minister. Um, not in terms of responsibility, but we'd say Mark Taylor, you know, when he came in, I think it's kind of forgotten now how good a captain he was because his batting kind of maybe faded away a little bit. What was he like for you as someone to deal with? Uh, okay. Now, the standing feature of Mark Taylor was he was a brilliant bad day captain at a press conference. If you look at his demeanour after they won or lost, it didn't change. I thought it was magnificent. I still remember Australia lost a test under Taylor in India really, really badly. Probably 98, 98. Yes, it was 98. And uh, I jumped into a lift at the team hotel and the Indian team was staying there and and Raul Dravid was in and he said, I've learned something today. And I said, what's that? And he said, I've just been talking to the Australians and Mark Taylor and you would have thought he'd won the test. He said, he's just telling old stories and he said he's already set about lifting the spirits of his team. And he said, I have to say, it's so impressive. We would be mortified if that was our team. So, you know, Mark was was uh, beyond compare as a losing day captain. I thought he was wonderful. Um, you know, excellent captain, had the respect, would stand up to players. Like, I used to remember saying to an umpire once, any sledging out there today? He said, oh, just the normal between Tubby and Warney, having their <laughs> traditional blues. Like, he'd stand up to Warney say, no, Warney, don't change the field, just bowl. But I'll also say this. He did have Glenn McGrath and uh, Shane Warne at their peaks. Like, if Alan Border had had Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne at their peaks, McGrath, of course, came in in 94, Border retired in 95, it would have been... You know, he would have had a different career. So, so he did have that, but he was a, he was a very alert captain, a very clever captain, a very positive captain. I like the way to play the he played the game, Mark Taylor. Mm, yeah, it's interesting. Alan Border, you know, his role of nurturing warning in those early years is, I don't know if it's undervalued, but I think Border pretty quickly twigged to how valuable Warren was as an asset in your team and the way he sort of nurtured him through. And on that 93-2, you were on, said to him, look, just don't bowl all your variations. And Hick was smashing him in the county game and he was just saying, stick with it, stick with it. And then we got that fabulous gadding ball. It, it, you know, Alan Border, it's no accident. Alan Border, you know, saw Warney and nurtured him. Oh, he did. And, you know, Shane Warne's always appreciated and enjoy that. He's a great fan of Border. Like, Warney gets on the commentary and he'll tell stories about what about the day when AB blew up, but he adores him. You know, you see them together and it's much like your favourite uncle. You know, Warren adores Border for being, you know, the hard man and and the the really strong captain. And look, there's no doubt that Border was to a certain degree not traumatised, but but all those matches in the 80s that he was in, Australia went four years without winning a series in the 80s. You think of that, not four months, not four tests, four years without winning a series. Now, that leaves deep scars. So, in other words, 
if, if people say, said a decade later, oh, gee, AB goes a fair while before he declares, doesn't he? Like, he likes to nail it in. That's all the scar tissue he had to battle through before making a declaration. So, but but certainly he was great for Shane Warne in that early period where Warne was getting going, for sure. And what about Steve Waugh, one of one of my favourite players growing up? Such an enigma, Steve Waugh. What was it like dealing with him? Because that was a, sort of that five years he was in charge, a, a lot happened. Uh, when he first came into cricket, he really felt the burden, man, as to be the boy wonder and who was just going to race through. And, and he, he, he was heavy. It, it really, like the, the umpires used to say in shield cricket in the, in the mid-80s that Steve was the, the bowler who always thought everything was out and the batsman who thought nothing was out with LBWs. Mm. So, in other words, and, and I remember one of his quotes when he got something, a, a decision rejected by an umpire, he said, it's all right for you, I'm trying to make a living as a professional cricketer. And in those days, manners, barely anyone was. There was about four guys earning a living. Steve still tells the story that when he went to Lynette's parents' place, his wife, and they said, oh, what would you like to do? He said, I want to be a professional cricketer. He said the conversation fell silent and everyone looked at their peas because, as he said, like, who was a professional cricketer in Australia? Alan Border and a couple others, you know. So it was a hard road to hoe back then. But uh, I, I really enjoyed Stephen as a captain and as a person. His press conferences were terrific. Gun barrel straight. You just, even if he spoke to you for three minutes, you got a story. And he knew how to stir the pot too. Like, he played... England in Perth on a bouncy whack of wicket. He said, I'm just worried about this test. There's going to be injuries for sure. The way we're bowling, the way that wicket is. And, oh, <laughs> so, you know, he was just an interesting... When he came to Brisbane, he uh, he said, can you take me out to meet Bill Brown, the old test opener? So he sat there and the, it was this beautiful hour minutes where he's sitting and... He said, Bill, how would I have gone against Bill O'Reilly, the old spinner? You know, would I have survived? And he said, Steve, you would have, but I faced Bill O'Reilly for 10 minutes once before lunch and I came off and my was ringing with sweat. It was exhausting. He was at you all the time. And Steve just, like, he was just getting off and all the old chat about Bradman. I loved the way he loved the history of the game. He adored Bill Brown, you know, and he loved Doug Walters. Uh, mm, you know, he, he just he loved the past. Tried to buy Victor, Victor Trumper's baggy green cap. I think Lynette bid up to $20,000 for it. And this is 20 years ago when money was money. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I love Doug Walters too. I was a coach for Barry Knight cricket camps for a number of years. And Doug Walters would be there every camp with Norm O'Neill and Brian Tabor. And they, they gave me a real education in cricket, those guys. I mean, they used to, boy, could they spin a yarn over a cold one. Oh, yeah. And, and, like, Doug is a remarkable character. When we did him for Cricket Legends, I sat down with him and worked out how many cigarettes he'd had, over 800,000. <laughs> and we sat down with a calculator and worked out the length of them, okay, if you put one cigarette after the other. And it came to 32 kilometres. So imagine sitting there, man, as where you are in the studio with a cigarette that's 32 kilometres long. If you do that, you've got Doug Walter's smoking career. <laughs> and you know, two years ago, when they did an X-ray of his lungs, they were fine. <laughs> it's, 
Greg Chappell reckons it's one of the great miracles of all time, <laughs> but he just gave up smoking on a whim, basically, after having some acupuncture. And um, I did oh, the same thing, Crash, the same treatment. With the, I did it at the same place, and it worked. Really? Yep. Wow. Uh, so, you know, Steve Waugh, amazing. I thought Steve Waugh brought this sort of worldview that uh, took to a sort of lens that Australian cricket had kind of been missing. It was a little bit insular, but he kind of opened up and he looked at India and all these tours as opportunities. And I don't know if it kind of flipped the way the Aussie team used to tour, the way it used to think. Yeah, he was always a, a great get out of your room sort of guy, you know. Totally different to Mark. Steve loved his camera and took thousands of photos. Mark never took a camera on tour. You know, Steve, I remember they went to very much a seminal moment in Steve Waugh's career. He went to Pakistan in 1988 and he he really didn't like the tour. Uh, They got stiffed by umpiring decisions and he got hit somewhere and a little bit hurt. And then he thought, oh, if I get if I get injured here, I'll get out of the tour. It was some story like that. And then instantly he was ashamed of himself. He thought, I've got to be better than that. So he was. He improved himself. And he grew to love the subcontinent. He really did. And it was he and Gavin Robertson, they'd put up these slogans. They'd call Tours of India the No Whinge, No Wine Tour, as in W-I-N-E. It's a play on words. And it was about as soon as you start whinging, Steve always reckon you lost the battle in India. So just get on with it. So he changed Australia's thinking in India. There's no question about that. And then after Steve obviously came Ricky Ponting, who I think has a sort of complicated legacy um, as Australian skipper. You know, he came in at a tough time. What's your view of Punter dealing with him and then his sort of legacy? Yeah, I, I think that... One of the, Ricky's challenges was because he was played a couple of years ahead of his grade, he never got the chance to be captain as a young kid. Like he was always playing two grades up. And so one of our journalists, I remember ringing the Tasmania Cricket Association and said, oh, you should promote this kid as captain. And they said, look, he's got to wait his turn. So when he started in cricket, he was just a scallywag. And I know Ian McDonald during... Ricky's first game with the Australian A team in Hobart, he had a big night, slept in and and was late for training and they fined him. But what they did, Menners, they kept it secret. And Mac has said for 20 years, if I went back in time, I'd make that fine public because he sort of got away with it and never learned his lesson. He said if we'd have made it public, he would have been two years ahead in his development. He would have never done it again. But he got there eventually. Like there was, uh, and I, 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 he was almost a more worldly guy for, for having little indiscretions here and there. But uh, he was a, a good captain, no question. The thing that surprised me a little bit, as Ian Chappell said, was that for a guy that was nicknamed Punter and loved, it, loved it gambling on the greyhounds and the horses, he wasn't necessarily a gambling captain. But he reads the game as well as anyone in world cricket. He's a magnificent commentator. And I will say this, the dressing room liked him. All the guys above him in the dressing room when he was a kid, Hayden, uh, Healy, Taylor, Hughes, they all had one thing in common. They all liked Ponting. They just thought he was a good kid. Yeah, sure, a bit of mischief in him. 
but a good kid going places. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you, you must have to tread a pretty sort of fine line covering these people and being on tours of, you know, you want to be friendly and have a, you know, a working relationship, but you, I guess you've got to come and keep some kind of distance. Some columnists like Peter Roebuck deliberately did not mix with the players, whereas in my job I have to. But it was awkward at times. Man, as I remember being in once in India and in the, I was in a, a hut and the other side of this hut, it was a, it was a sort of a, was Stephen War. We're right over the edge of the compound. Why? How we got on, I'll never know. But it was dangerous days where I was criticising Stephen and the team. And our papers used to be online. This is the early days of the internet, after about 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> so at 10 o'clock at night, I'd hear Steve trying to get the internet up in the other side of this hut. And I'd hear these bing, bing, bong, and I'd think, oh, don't connect. I don't want him to read the paper. But when it, when it fell silent, when you heard this, you knew it connected. And I'd think, oh. oh and, no. uh, and Steve loved reading the papers. He, he loved uh, wanting to know what you'd written about him. So I, I remember in that time thinking, oh, this job's cruel. I don't want to leave my room. I don't want to see Steve. I've just criticised him. <laughs> but sometimes it can be testing, but all good fun in the end. Yeah, I guess. Um, were there any, um, you know, not private where someone gives you a call and says, I want to talk to you about this story, but did anyone try and kind of rake you over the coals at a press conference or, or try and do that when you were a youngster? Because I know in rugby league circles, the coaches try and walk all over the young journos. Um, but what, what about you? Did you ever have that? Or um, I, I think, you know, certainly – Behind closed doors, you know, there was some, you know, tense moments at times. And, you know, a lot, a lot of the times I was to blame. You know, I got things wrong. I, I just misinterpreted someone's quotes or anything like that. I, I always found Alan Border intimidating, but he was very fair. He was really fair. Bob Simpson got me once, I have to say. He had a, a, an ailment and he went to hospital in the West Indies and I said, someone said to me, oh, you should see the hospital. It's like a mass unit. So I wrote in the story, Simpson, who went to a hospital which resembles a, a, a mass unit. Uh, and his wife, Meg, rang him up and said, I'm so worried about you. You're in this hospital. It looks like a mass unit. And Simo knocked on my door and just went for me. And he got me. Uh, he, 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 I had to apologise because I saw the hospital and in no way did it resemble a mass ship. The mass course was the old American television series. Mm. So I had to apologise and it took me back to a comment. Bob was really smart and shrewd, great coach, you know, prickly sort of guy. Before I went on my first tour, I asked Peter Taylor, the old spinner, do you have any advice? And he said, if you take on Bob Simpson in an argument, get your facts right because... He's almost unbeatable. He will only go you if he thinks he will win and he will beat you in arguments. And I found that. I, I had four big arguments with Simo and he won all four because he didn't contest it unless he knew he was right and he got me every time. Simo got me one day. I walked into a room. It was Macca, Simo, Border, Boone, Healy and maybe a little a girl. I was a youngster. A girl maybe kissed me on the neck, crash, and he, he, he clued up to that pretty quickly. He said, is that a hickey on your neck? And I just went blushed, blushed because all these heroes are around me. And, and I said, oh, my, no, that's a cricket ball from training. And he just looked at me and said, I'm the Australian cricket coach. I know what a cricket ball looks like. And I just went red. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, you can't get any past Simo, that's for sure. 
he was so perceptive, Bob Simpson. Like, I, even Manus, I didn't actually get along great with him, but I had such respect for him. I'd read him once a season, even after he stopped the job. And uh, I'd say five things to him. Why is Australia can't catch you in the slips? And he'd say, their feet are too far apart and they're standing too far apart. Why is so-and-so bowling uh, no balls? He's a wonderful observer of the game. He was. Well, Crash, we're running out of time, but uh, you know, you, thank you for all your insights. It's been fantastic to talk to you. I just want to know, um, you know, you're in a great spot now. You seem to be, you know, doing a bit of writing, a bit of TV, a bit of radio. What's next? What What do you want to do? Write a book? What, what's 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 in the horizon for Crash? Well, I, I tell you, a distant one, Madness, and I don't think I'll get there. But but it is a provocative carrot, okay? Brisbane, I think, will get the 2032 Olympics. And I'll be age 70 then. And I certainly won't be front and centre. But I've always liked the thought of if the Olympics came to my town after being a sports journalist in this town for a lot of years, oh, I'd love to play some role. Because it's the ultimate. It's the biggest and it's the best. And in our little Brisbane town, when I came here in 1984, on a Sunday night, there was only two places, two restaurants open in the entire city. To think that that little glorified country town could host the games is quite something. So I, I probably won't get there, Menace, but I'm eyeing, eyeing up. You've got to have a distant target. You've got to have a dream, mate. And uh, But the game owes me nothing, Menace. It's been a wonderful ride. And even our, our time together this morning's just been so many beautiful memories. And I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, Crash, thanks so much for joining me. You are an inspiration to many. I know... Um you know, that might um, make you a bit uncomfortable, but, you know, people, you know, I hear it all the time, how much people enjoy your work. So I thank you for everything you do. um, And uh, I look forward to um, reading and listening to all of it. My absolute pleasure, man. And uh, you're a bit of an inspiration yourself, mate. You're driven by passion, a late starter in the game. And I, but I love the way that you, you've made something of yourself with, uh, you know, really followed your dream. So good luck, mate. My pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Robert Craddock. Thanks again for supporting the show and subscribing to Patreon. And I'll be back next month with another interview. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.